name is Benjamin, and welcome to Affable Chat. Today on the podcast, we'll be discussing the 2014 film, The Grand Budapest Hotel, directed by Wes Anderson, inspired by the writings of Stefan Zweig, screenplay by Wes Anderson. We'll discuss how Wes Anderson uses his unique style to create a movie that looks and feels like no other. We'll break down Monsieur Gustave and find out exactly what makes him such a complex and interesting character. We'll take a look at how Wes Anderson creates stark contrast between the whimsy of his fictional world and the harshness of reality. All this and more on this episode of Affable Chat. Joey, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Pleasure as always. Yes, I'm so excited to talk to you about this movie, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. This is the f- I, I had never seen this movie before uh, prior to preparing for this episode, and uh, I heard a lot of hype about it, actually, for a long time. And I'm, I'm pretty happy that now that I've finally seen it because it definitely lived up to the hype. Well, that's good to hear because it's, it's definitely one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies um, of all time. I saw it in the theaters. Um, it was so amazing. It just blew me away. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's super iconic, super memorable, uh, instant, instantly rewatchable, too. A lot of times when, I, uh, when I've just seen a movie, I, it'll take me a while before I have the urge to see it again. But as soon as I finish this movie, I wanted to start at the beginning and just watch it all over, and especially after getting to know all these characters throughout um but i'm getting ahead of myself here Uh, no that's i mean yeah i i totally agree with that and i think wes anderson movie wes anderson's movies are a lot like that very easily rewatchable because you hide so much detail in them there's always more to pick out um like like that little thing with uh boy with apple right the painting it shows up uh in the background at the um the desk uh you see that you see that first before you are ever introduced to it so yeah, it's like a nice little Easter egg for people who've seen the movie before. They know what to look for that. Agreed. Yeah, and 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 also just like obviously a big part of this movie is the aesthetic. Uh, it's just fun to look at, and uh, and I think and we'll get into why that is so important. But before we do all that, I think we should go ahead and do the synopsis. All right, sounds good. <clears throat> the Grand Budapest Hotel follows the incredible life of M. Gustav H. as seen through the eyes of Zero Mustafa, his last lobby boy. Gustave was the concierge at a prominent hotel in Zubroka called the Grand Budapest, where he catered heavily and personally to a number of old ladies. One of these women is killed mysteriously, and Gustave is gifted a priceless piece of art in her will. The painting in question, called Boy with Apple, is also sought after by the deceased surviving children who will stop at nothing to acquire every last cent of the old woman's fortune. Gustav is framed and sent to prison, where he befriends a group of criminals who help him escape. He and Zero are then on the run, aided by the Society of the Cross Keys, a secret network of hotel personnel with incredible influence. Back at the Grand Budapest, a shootout occurs between the Nazi soldiers who have occupied the hotel and the angry relatives of the old woman desperate to find Boy with Apple. During the battle, a second will is found, and it dictates that in the event of her murder, Gustav is to inherit everything from the old woman including the Grand Budapest itself. 
However, this happy ending does not last long. While traveling, Zero and Gustav are stopped by the Nazis and detained. Gustav is shot while attempting to defend his friend Zero, who is an immigrant. There you go. Succinct as always, Joey. Thank you. I hope I don't miss, miss too much of it. <laughs> well, I know this is confusing for people who've never seen the movie. <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, but let's uh, let's start right there with uh, the, I guess, the overall aesthetic with this movie. Sure. Which is uh, Wes Anderson. <laughs> yeah, it is Wes Anderson, and, and it's and it it changes. Literally, the window through which you view this world changes yeah. during the movie. That's right, because it takes place over like like three or four different time periods. So as like time goes on, and as you know, um, you know, you're going backward in time. The screen changes from you know first full screen, first like a. a wide wide like widescreen and then it goes to a smaller more like kind of uh intimate screen and until it's basically just full screen almost square in its ratio um which is unusual um but so appropriate for the way this movie is shot and the story it's telling right and it's uh it just honestly it's it's just so different from everything else like it's so uh, with, with the way that they like, I, I can't remember another movie that I've seen that changes the aspect ratio during the movie. I think I think there are other ones, but I can't think of any really good examples right now. Um, it is something that they that people do to kind of like, you know, facilitate like, oh, this was shot in the past, kind of thing, right? Sure. You, you kind of give that the like the sepia tone or like the black and white, right? Because it was in the past. Right, so. right. The world looked different back then. Right, right. And it's supposed to help indicate to you, the audience, like what's going on, um, which can be annoying. But I think for this, it, like it's subtle enough that like I didn't even notice it until I went back and was reading reviews, and somebody was like, "Yeah, I thought my my I thought my TV was messed up." <laughs> <laughs> Turns out I did it on purpose. I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" And so I went back and like rewatched it because the transition is so good because it happens. The first transition, I believe, is. Uh, from when they first start introducing the story, they have a title card. Like Wes Anderson's movies, a lot of, a lot of them have like chapters or title cards. Yes. And um, and this one, they show the title card, and then from that on, then on, it is in uh, the aspect ratio one point three seven as opposed to the traditional one point eight five. Well, I uh, I especially liked because I mean a lot of times I want to see as much as I can, right? I feel like yeah. more is better, but with the one point three uh, seven aspect ratio almost every single frame for the rest of the movie is uh, like a work of art like each one of them is like there's a lot of uh, symmetry because you, mm. you have that opportunity with like the square and uh, and and it's something about just putting it in, in almost like a frame uh, really works for this movie like it, it really makes each setting and, and like the way that the story is told uh, kind of unique to to this movie uh, I mean, getting further into that, like, I noticed, and I'm not sure if this is the best way to describe it, I, I'm not super uh, knowledgeable on, like, camera angles or uh, camera movements, I guess, but I picked up pretty quickly that every, like, each scene, the camera is looking directly down one of the X, Y, or Z axes, uh, hmm. and it moves linearly within those three, never, never uh, sliding diagonally. It's always either moving left to right, right to left, up and down, or sh- yeah. or you know towards the object or away from it. Uh, yeah, it's so interesting how he does that, right? Like it's almost like the action 
part of the action is the camera movement, right? Nothing happens on screen while the camera is moving. Everybody freezes and then the camera moves, unless like the camera is moving with someone. Because you see that um, at the beginning when you first see Gustav, like you see the camera moving through the walls, following Gustav as he walks like back and forth, making sure everything is in order. Right. Yes, and there's so many creative ways that the camera seemingly moves through the uh, like the the environment to yeah. track something from room to room uh, while it's on the move. Or because the, the camera isn't always straight up uh, looking straight at something and then switching to a cam- another camera angle or only moving up or only moving left. There are t- there are times where the camera pans, but only from a straight on look to another straight on look where yeah. where the action happens like. The best way I can describe it, because again, I, I don't I have the right terminology, is like a Super Mario platformer, where everything yeah. that happens happens on a flat surface, right? Like it happens right in front of you, and it, uh, you know, a lot of times, it, it it's just moving along those axes. I think that's like a dolly shot. I think that's the I don't know if that's the correct term, but when I whenever I see something like that, it's like the camera is on a track and it's moving along that track, just being pushed very smoothly. Um, and I mean that something like that takes a lot of preparation, but it also takes like I mean it's they're expensive and like hard to manage, right? And like that those smooth tracking shots are just so beautiful that it really pays off. Yeah, no, and it's it's beautiful because you, you you get creative with the way yeah. that you choose your camera angles in this sense. Like one that I thought was really neat was uh, when when they had gotten the boy with Apple and they were on the train and they were talking mm. about what to do with it. And Gustav was talking about why it was special to him when he, uh, he, he, he says, notice the resemblance, and he poses in a similar pose in front of it. <laughs> yeah. So you have the painting in the background and Gustav in front of it, between you and the painting, and there's yeah. a mirror on the wall. And Zero leans in to take a look at the resemblance, and you can see his reflection in the mirror. So in this right. one straight-on camera like, angle, we can see the painting, Gustav's face, and the reflection of Zero's face. And it's just, it's, <laughs> it, 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 it has the constraints that the entire movie has, these same uh, types of camera angles, but it, it still delivers everything you need to see. Uh, and yeah. it's, it's, the execution is just masterful. It really is, you know, and I think what you're saying about having like that that smaller space is almost better for someone like Wes Anderson, who is so obsessed about every little every little detail, right? You know, the less it's on it's in his view, the more control he has over it. So it's just interesting how that's like um, that's almost benefits him having less. Agreed. Yeah. Um, another like Wes Anderson trope is having a star-studded cast. Um, it seems to me that every time you give somebody enter into a Wes Anderson movie, they're in every Wes Anderson movie after that. Like, uh, Edward Norton was in Moonrise Kingdom, um, which I believe came out before, uh, Grand Budapest, but he was in, he was in Moonrise Kingdom, then Grand Budapest, and then in the latest one, Isle of Dogs. Um, same thing with Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum was in this one, uh, Grand Budapest first, and he was also in Isle of Dogs. It's like they, he collects actors as he's going along. It's crazy. Well, and why wouldn't you when you've got these huge names who are signing on to your project? Even yeah. for cameo appearances. I mean, yeah. Owen Wilson's definitely not in this movie very much. Bill Murray's not in this movie very much. No. But it that you still get... You kind of get you're in awe when you see another one show up. You're like, this guy's in this movie too, because I I definitely don't feel like the movie leans on them in any way. They're just kind no. of sprinkled in there as 
straight up cameos and uh, the movie stands on its own two feet without them but it is a nice surprise and it's a you know a typical thing to see in a Wes Anderson film yeah and they don't spend a lot of time lingering on them right like you don't like the sometimes it's cut it's cut to them and you're like wow that's crazy and there's like a little bit of a pause to like kind of let that sink in but it's never like oh you know put them in lights or like you know zoom in closer to their face or make some sort of big reveal about it right? right it's just unexpected it's not it's not like built up to be something so special just because it's an actor you recognize right and when people were telling me that i should see this movie i don't remember people telling me that the, the cast was super as impressive as it ended up being but yeah. I think that that's just kind of assumed whenever you see a Wes Anderson film, I guess. I guess so. I mean, it, it definitely seems like it's it's been more recent. Uh, this is a phenomenon that's kind of come up more recently. Although he's had he's always had like big uh, name actors in his movies. Uh, it seems like now that he kind of has that prestige of all these you know critically acclaimed and and beloved movies um, under his belt, people are more willing to sign up for it. Uh, I'm actually surprised that. Uh, Ray Fiennes isn't in, in more stuff. He's the guy who plays Gustav. I thought he was so good in this movie. He's brilliant. Um, and, I mean, he is, I mean, he was in, he's Voldemort in the Harry Potter series too, so it's not like he's like, you know, underrated or anything, but I, I feel like he is, I feel like he carries his movie so well that I wouldn't be surprised to see him, you know, starring his own thing. Yeah, no, I agree. He, he, a lot of the movie is carried by him and he yeah. does a tremendous job with this. And, uh, Gustav is a very memorable character, and we'll break him down in depth. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> shortly here. Uh, but I want to I want to talk a little bit more about this aesthetic because I feel like that sure. word is used a lot with Wes Anderson. And uh, when I went to watch this movie the second time, I would rented it on YouTube. So uh, and I was watching it on the TV, so I had to like rewind it basically. Like mm-hmm. I just slap, I just scrub the timeline all the way to the left, and it shows you little preview windows of the scenes while you're doing that and it's it's obviously faster than the movie just in reverse it skips but sure. <laughs> you get kind of a summary of what the movie looks like at a glance and what i noticed was that almost every single frame was had a theme of like one specific color depending oh, on wow. where they were uh i mean there was a lot of like in the jail it was a lot of whites uh in the hotel it was more of like an orange and uh like purple uh like people wearing purple clothing and uh it, it was so it, it just seems so intentional at that point uh that these colors were all dominating the scenes that they were in each scene felt distinct and different uh be, obviously because they're in a different location but also because there's a different color that was demanding uh the most attention in that scene yeah um, have you have you ever heard of like movie barcodes it's like this idea that you you take like every frame of the movie and you compress it into like a tiny sliver yes. and then you assemble the whole thing into like a what looks like a barcode. Yep. Um that's what that's what reminded me of this. I I used to follow a, a blog on Tumblr who would make these and it, they were super fascinating cuz you saw like the color change throughout thing. I just found the one for Grand Budapest and it's like it almost looks like a hallway of like a carpet in a hallway of a hotel. Like that's the kind of colors it reminds <laughs> me of. Like these nice beiges and things. Um, yeah, it's I I really like that kind of symmetry or like that that kind of um, not symmetry but like that adherence to a certain form. You know, like keeping in context with the color. Yeah, no, that's it's so uh, it's so interesting to me. And there's a lot and, of uh, and there's a lot of situations where groups of people in a scene end up looking very similar uh, by like adhering to a certain dress code uh, because we do have a lot of characters 
in this movie that are staff so they have to yeah. they wear a uniform so they end up looking the same or soldiers and they end up looking the same because they're wearing the same uniform or prisoners because they they all wear the same uniform so uh and i i think that all plays very well with this whole uh like monochromatic theme that extends throughout the whole movie yeah it definitely aids to that um uh, aids to your kind of understanding of what's going on and it helps like kind of propel the story forward but it also is just aesthetically pleasing yes it's really nice to see like all this kind of uniform uh pun intended uh, (laughs) color (laughs) all all throughout this movie is is extremely visually pleasing uh not not just with the like colors but also the uh can't, like the the combination of that with the camera angles and everything is just kind of structured, but also really pleasant. I, I I love it. I mean, I yeah, I I think so too. It's just it's amazing to me that like this level of detail is even possible. You know, because it's just so much. It's so much work. And like you think about how a movie is a collection of pictures and how like a single photograph can can be so meaningful. So like it just makes sense really that. A, a movie can become so much more meaningful than that. It can extend past just, you know, a collection of images that tell a story and can become a collection of photographs, each of them telling their own story. So, I mean, especially yeah. with this movie, there are multiple times where, I, I mean, you could almost stop this movie at any point and make it like a desktop background. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's beautiful, honestly. I, I, I agree with that. Okay, so let's uh, let's start moving talking about the story then a little bit since we've covered the aesthetics, how this movie looks. Let's talk about what it says. Um, it kind of starts off with a story within a story within a story, um, right? Because you it starts off with a girl with a book going to visit the author's grave, the the author of the book, right? And um, she starts to read it, and then the the book starts with the author talking about a story that he was told by another guy. So, yeah, I'm not sure how many levels that is. I think it's three. <laughs> but to me, like, what this means is that the story that was being told, the person who is the center of the story, Gustav, um, is so such an extraordinary gentleman that he perpetuates this, like level of art for you know generations you know what i mean like he is so interesting that it's not enough that one person told a story his story will continue forever just because every he's such an interesting person right i mean he uh i guess the an extra layer of it would be that this is a movie like on top of all the the things yeah, inside of it right that's exactly right the story is within another package that's being delivered which uh is super cool because uh it kind of changes the way we uh, well the movie is presented to us right because those are the shifts between narratives are where we switch our um aspect ratio right yeah exactly um and i i really like how this is done especially at the end of the movie when it cuts back slow like really quick First, it ends, you know, Zero finishes his story, and then uh, the author finishes telling his story, and then the girl closes the book, right? Right. Um, and it's just these three really simple cuts, and yet you're back exactly where you started, and you're like, it kind of helps you zoom out. And then, of course, the movie ends. So, like, you're, um, you know, every part of that is built into it, 
where you're like, wow, this was such a, there's so many levels to this that I, I almost forgot about just because of how well it was told. It's just really interesting how, um, like it, it adds this level of depth that isn't really there because Gustav isn't a real person, right? I mean, maybe he was built, maybe he was based on somebody or something, but I, I don't know, but it's not like this is an actual book that was written by an actual, about an actual guy. And yet like the movie grants him this gravitas, this like weight of realness by putting him so deep within stories. Agreed. I mean, this author was seen as somewhat of a hero. His, yeah. Uh, I mean, to have the type of it wasn't a normal tombstone. That was definitely a memorial, and people had put all their keys on it. Yeah, which is which is so interesting too, right? I mean, I don't know. I think Wes Anderson definitely holds a a, a high stand, like a high position in our art society because he's. I really like his movies. I think he's he makes stuff that no one else makes. Um, and they're all very, very good. But like this author in the in the story, he's he has this great gravesite with all these keys on it and everything. And so it, and it seems like that girl is sitting there to read this book that he was well known for. And then of course he um, goes to talk to this this guy Zero Mustafa, um, who is this well known like you know very interesting rich guy, who is like is really mysterious. Um, and who approaches the author because of his re- renownedness, right? Right. So it's like these, like Wes Anderson is this prominent director. Then you have this prominent author inside of the story. And then you have this prominent man who knew Gustav. And it all stems from this one man who is just so extraordinary that he perpetuates this level of something. Yeah. Um, well, that level uh, of extra. Uh, extraordinariness? Is that a word? I don't know. Like, I don't, he's, he's, <laughs> is that even a word? He is so extraordinary that it elevates all these people that end up being touched by his life yeah even totally indirectly i love that (laughs) yeah no it is great i mean even the people that know gustav in the story that's being told i feel like a lot of them have their lives be improved especially zero yes yes um and yeah i mean i mean zero talks about like i mean he became the owner of the hotel eventually right and he talks about his like how much influence this man had over him, you know, just, you know, teaching him everything that he knew. It's, it's amazing. Okay. What's, um, so okay, would you classify this movie in a genre? Like what, what, if someone to say, what kind of movie is Grand Budapest Hotel? And you couldn't say it's a Wes Anderson movie because that's obviously <laughs> its own thing. <laughs> what would you say? Like, what would you say the story is? I have no idea. Maybe a, uh, almost, almost a bromance maybe hmm. okay where okay. because i think a lot of the movie does build on the relationship between gustav and zero yeah i think that yeah that doesn't truly encapsulate it but i also don't think any one genre is going to encapsulate what this is i think right because it because it is like it is like a drama right because like all it deals with this heavy stuff but it's also really funny so it's like it's light-hearted and everything so it almost seems like a comedy but it's also dealing with kind of like, you know, this. So almost, I would say a mystery. Maybe there is like a mystery element to it. Yeah, but that doesn't seem to be even the focus of the story. Right, because I mean, a lot <laughs> of the stuff that I guess maybe a little bit of the mystery to it, because. Uh, but but I I'm not sure because they kind of give us the answer right at the beginning, like when he puts yeah. the the second copy of the second will. Uh, 
on <laughs> on the back of the painting. But at the time, I, I at least I didn't catch it what that was. So that kind of has yeah. a mystery air to it. So Maybe I, like a biopic, right? Like it's about this one guy. It kind of because it does focus all on Gustave. You know, it starts with him of zero meeting him, and it ends when he dies. Right. So, right. I guess we could put it that way. I don't know. But the it's point hard to put this in a box. Right, right. Well, the point you're making is that it is so unique to it. Like whenever I'm like I, I like to be involved with like hip hop and the artists that are in rap and uh, yeah. a lot of them you call them rappers and you judge them based on like how good their like lyrics are and, and all that and and they kind of all compete on the same grade. But then you have a guy like Kanye West who you don't consider much of a rapper but more as an artist and each time he re- releases something it's like a artistic project and you kind of evaluate it differently and that's the way i look at a wes anderson film yeah i think you could say the same thing about like bo burnham like i don't even consider bo burnham a comedian as much as i do like a performance artist yep right because his his art just kind of like transcends anything that you've seen before on a stage um it's the same reason why i don't try to describe those people like i don't try to describe (laughs) kanye west or bo burnham or wes anderson with yeah, but, but like I don't try to convince somebody to get become a fan or to get into it uh, by trying to describe it. I just say, go check it out, experience it for yourself because it's not like the stuff that you've seen before. Yeah. Um. So you have something written here about dialogue, like in a book. Oh, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So um, when the story's transitioning in like deeper into these stories, especially when. The author is talking to uh, Monsieur John, the uh, yes. modern day or the 1985 modern day concierge, and uh, something that I thought was interesting about that, just while we're on the topic of that specific exchange, was Zero says that Monsieur John is not a first-rate, maybe not even a second-rate concierge, and at okay. the time when you're fr- I, like when you're first seeing the movie, you're first getting into it, I'm like. That's kind of like rude because he seemed like a perfectly good concierge. He was talking to the author, right? He, he said yeah, it had yeah. become his nightly habit to hang out with the concierge. And uh, I think they, to uh, Bud Elbows, I think was the way he said it. But they, uh, yeah, something like that. They, they had a pretty decent conversation. But after seeing the rest of this movie and getting to experience some of the other concierges yeah you come to realize <laughs> some mon- first rate ones <laughs> yes you kind yeah you you understand what a first rate concierge is and you realize that right. monsieur jean not exactly that same caliber <laughs> no not even close but okay we can talk about the the concierge of all concierges gustave um we can talk about him next just because he is such a mean uh, element of the story and we've already kind of covered him in, in some ways but i feel like we should um describe his character a little bit just kind of get into the oh yeah well the weeds of it instantly from the way you're introduced to him he's a man in charge a man who has who, who knows the situation and he has a plan that he's going to carry out because the first time you see him he's walking through these rooms very confidently like he knows where he's going and then the next thing you see him do is directing the rest of the hotel staff he's very clearly in charge and not only that but he's talented enough that he can be directing where to put that table and those trunks and and deliver this to that person yeah, very much a capable uh I, Leader, maybe, but I don't know mm. if that's the the thing that they're focusing on. Just a very capable, organized, interesting man. Yeah, and I think um, uh, 
yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. He is such an organized person. And you never see him almost doing one thing at a time. Like, he's almost always doing multiple things, you know, thinking out several things at once and trying to, you know, teach Zero at the same time as uh, he's, you know, dealing with all sorts of other uh, crises at his hotel. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a point of pride, right? Like, he he keeps the hotel running in, in such a in such good fashion that, you know, um, nobody ever notices the problems that, uh, that he solves, which is just incredible. I mean, it's so interesting watching him walk through the lobby, right? Because, like, he's super, he's super uh, strict with his staff, right? He says, no, that's not going to do it. No, start over. Yeah. No, get back, whatever. And then, but to the customers and to his patrons, he's always very gracious. You know, he's always shaking their hands and calling them by name. Um, it's just this, that dynamic, right, where he's like, I I need to be the boss in this situation, but I need to be the, the gentle host in this situation. Um, he switches between that just seamlessly. It's it's amazing. It's amazing to watch that. Yeah, no, even if it is totally scripted. Well, sure, but he's the uh, he's a gracious host, a the, the servant of all guests, but also yeah. a man of high regard who's to be feared and respected. It's an interesting dichotomy, uh, and it I think it takes a certain air to pull off, which he and the other concierges that we witness in this movie pull it off perfectly. And it's uh, it's really awesome to hear them talk because they I think that. Throughout this whole movie, uh, there's a lot of the dialogue is kind of uh, distinct. There's a uh, everybody speaks with a lot of intention, and there's not a lot of like umming and you know kind of trying to find their words. Especially the concierges have direct orders, and they have uh, they they speak like they know what they're talking about. And uh, and Gustav brings a lot of that all the time. He seems to have yeah. always been in this situation before or have some sort of experience he can draw on to have a good solution. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, this is characteristic of a lot of Wes Anderson movies where they, they talk with a certain grace. You know, uh, I mean, we kind of talked about this in one of our first episodes about how, like, Tarantino writes his dialogue to seem, like, real. Right. To seem like what's actually what people say, but it's also stylized, you know? Like, it, the dialogue has real implications, but the... Um, the way they speak is almost in like a soliloquy type way where they kind of have this gentle flow to it. And Wes Anderson kind of does away with all of that. There's there's nothing real almost about what people say. Although I think this movie has this really interesting like underlying idea that um, kind of plays into the way the dialogue is spoken. But um, I think uh, Gustav kind of uh, hits that um, squarely in the head with one of his best quotes, which is about, um, I think, his personal philosophy, uh, which they use to describe him after he dies. And he says, You see, there are still faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric, barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity. Indeed, that's what we provide in our own modest, humble, insignificant... Oh, fuck it. <laughs> um, he, he is describing his role in society as this, you know, uh, glimmer of civilization. Um, and he speaks in this way that's like very flowy and very you know graceful and everything. But he still has this like these crude words that he uses the, for interjection to um, to show real emotion, you know. And, it, and it's to show like his exhaustion, but it's also to show how like this it's this constant struggle against the barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity. He has to constantly fight to be that glimmer of civilization and uh, to ke- uphold that sort of place in society through uh through the Bu- grand budapest hotel like there's that 
uh, reputation that they have to uphold. So his lifestyle, the way that he presents himself, is almost a way to uh, continue that for the hotel, to keep that image up. Um, like you, you said that he was really, uh, like the way he handles the staff, he's super strict about it, and he wants them to be a certain way to keep up that image. Uh, right. Even when he first acknowledges Zero, when he realizes he doesn't know who he is, he immediately starts investigating, right, trying to find out who he is and uh, whether or not he can cut it on the... Yeah, he has a, your interview will start immediately. Right, and that was such a cool <laughs> sequence, which, and we kind of talked about it too, where he's just walking past all of his staff and not only engaging in this interview with Zero, but also handling b- the day-to-day business of the hotel flawlessly. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. Um, it's it's just a awesome thing to see. And, yeah, I think I think the hotel is kind of representative of this of Gustav in a big way, right? Like it's this, I keep going back to this, this glimmer of civilization. Mm -hmm. It's this um, place of hospitality. It's this place that you can feel safe and protected. Um, It's this, it's this place that you could go and you know exactly what's going to happen. You know, there's nothing unpredictable about it. And that's because Gustav runs it so well. It's, it's a macrocosm, I guess you could say of Gustav himself. The, the, The hotel reflects his own personality and his own orderliness. And eccentricness, too. Yes. And speaking of his eccentricness, he's a big fan of poetry. Uh, <laughs> yes. And I am interested to hear, maybe you have better insight on what the intention of the inclusion of poetry was in this movie. Because I, I throughout my life, I have struggled to understand poetry in the sense that there are a lot of times where I will see a poem posted on, like, say, Twitter, and someone will be like, this is beautiful, and... I won't get anything out of it at all. I'll be I'll be confused because of the way that they wrote it, and uh, this like some sentences are short and choppy, and there doesn't seem to be any sort of real action that's taken in, in the poem, and it's just words. And uh, so I'm I don't want it to seem like I'm an expert on poetry and saying that there's bad poetry in this movie, but uh, I felt like the attitude towards poetry kind of bounced back and forth between like praise of poetry, but also kind of pointing out my what what I think is my perspective, which is like that poetry is a little bit excessive and annoying uh, because, uh, I mean, there obviously Zero picks up this um, this appreciation of poetry from Gustav because you see like like when Gustav escapes from the prison, Zero presents him with his poem about uh, Agatha and they get interrupted by the siren from the prison. But he says, you like, remember where you stop because I, I must hear the rest of it. Obviously, he is interested in hearing the rest of this poem. But then we also have scenes like when they're in that mess hall, and it really is a hall where all the yeah. staff eat, where he, whenever the poetry starts, that's when they signal, all right, go ahead and eat. It's, like, it's going to be a while. And uh, especially when Zero has to deliver the message for them. And he says, we should probably start eating because it's 46 stanzas. And, uh, and I got a kick out of that so much because I think that, you know, from my, I think that poetry is a little bit, can be excessive. So uh, what, what did you think? What was your opinion on the poetry in this movie? Well, I, I mean, I could, I don't know. I, I, I could back up a little bit and say that, like, I find a poetry is a lot like, a poetry is to, like, a novel as pictures are to a movie, where, like, there's an infinite amount of detail that you could fit into a poem um, that, like, you maybe may use the same words that are used in a novel, but it's, it, it, it 
does it in such a way that it gives you the certain feeling, yeah. right? And every novel has the potential to become poetic, um, and there's just this infinite almost amount of detail that you could fit into any arrangement of words uh, if you find a, like a creative way to do it. Um, so for me, the poetry in this movie kind of represented this idea of Gustave as like, well, okay, Zero is describing him to the author is one of the last things he says to the author. He says, to be frank, I think that his, I think his world, referring to Gustave, uh, vanished long before he arrived in it, but he certainly sustained the illusion for a little while. And it's this idea that Gustave existed in his own little romantic world um, where he was constantly trying to become this ray of help, ray of hope, this you know beacon of hospitality to other people. And part of that aesthetic was just this obsession with poetry. It's one of his, you know, one of his quirks. It's one of his ways of putting people at ease, right? Because he does that to Tilda Swinton's character, to the old woman, right? She, she's in the, she's in the elevator, and she tells him to stop reciting, and he's like, "No, no, just listen to the words." Yeah. And it's like it's the way of it's this way of comforting people, um, you know, of of expressing his deep feelings for stuff. Uh, but I guess people don't appreciate it, just as people don't appreciate the hospitality of a hotel. I don't know. It's um, it's definitely a, a an interesting inclusion, but it, I think there is something there that I'm missing. Well, I I think like many artistic things, poetry included, it's open for interpretation. So, um, for me, I'll take it as a uh, you know <laughs> a lighthearted jab at poetry being mildly annoying to some. Uh, but also just a part of Gustav's eccentric character uh, because it does yeah. make it makes sense that a man such as himself who enjoys the finer things who leaves a lingering odor of perfume wherever he goes <laughs> that he would also enjoy poetry a lot yeah um, and there's I mean there's a couple more things we could talk about with him one of the things is that he's he's extremely cynical right he he has this like kind of dark view of how other people are. When when they're in the hotel, they're they're his guests and he, they're they're the best people in the world. But you know, outside of the hotel, it's just this slaughterhouse of you know barbaric slaughterhouse of what was once called humanity. All these people that just don't seem to understand what hospitality means, you know. And it's not just a it's not just a thing you do at a hotel. It's a way of life. Um, and so he has a bunch of good cynical lines. I think one of my favorites is, there's really no point in doing anything in life because it's all over in a blink of an eye. And next thing you know, rigor mortis sets in. <laughs> that was a stark contrast to his attitude up until that point, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, and I almost like blew by it. I was like, oh yeah, just, uh, like, what? where did that come from? Like, it's just, <laughs> it's like, it's almost so expected you forget about it. It's just, I don't know, it's hysterical. And he has a lot of that stuff in this where he's, um, he's undercutting just kind of this, this idea and he does kind of wear this sad expression doesn't he even when he's like laughing and everything he seems to almost have this melancholy that follows him yeah and i, I maybe that's just comes to the territory right because even zero when he was introduced to us the uh you know the old man zero that is in the book yeah he is has this lingering sadness like a sadness that uh, is overwhelming and more powerful and more intense than like the average sadness they they say it better than that but you, you get what i'm yeah you, you know what i'm referring I, to i do exactly what you're talking about and i think he conveys that so well too yeah it's just like he even his smiles are sad um okay one more thing with gustav and that is the um the society of cross keys 
there's not really a better place to talk about this. I think this is such an interesting idea. Okay. Um, I just really love the idea of like a secret society. Doesn't it make you want to be a part of like this, you know, interconnected group of, of people that just like, have all this influence? Well, I was, I, I was relieved <laughs> that Gustav is not the only one like him. There are, yeah. there, there are a litany, there are a Skittle, a veritable Skittles rainbow of other concierges <laughs> who do the same thing that Gustav does with the same level of energy and efficiency, but at their own hotels that also have amazing names as well. Yes, I love that. That, that scene where you're introduced to all of them um, is so hilarious because they all call each other up. I don't know why they have to call every single one of them, but it's so funny, especially since there's this whole thing with the... Um, the lobby boys, right? Like the, yes. The concierges are doing something important. Um, uh, I have it all listed here. And then the the lobby boy comes in and whispers in his ear, and then the concierge says, take over. And <laughs> the lobby boy takes over whatever he's doing. Like, one of them is, the, is the conducting a happy birthday song. And then he's some, there's something happening with, like, a fire. Like, there's a fire truck there, and the, the concierge is just saying, hire, hire. And then the, oh, and the yeah. lobby boy takes over, and he's like, hire. <laughs> And then there's one there's one concierge who's giving CPR to a guy who passed out playing tennis, and then the last one's a uh, te- testing soup, um, and the oh yeah, and I, I love that over. testing soup one because uh, I mean all of these are example of the lobby boy being just like the concierge, but especially yeah. that one because he proves it by tasting it and saying the same thing: too much salt. Uh, so he's been trained well. These these lobby boys are uh, you know ri- up and comers. They rival the. Uh, the abilities of our very own zero Um, that's right yes i love that that was so funny um and yeah i just i don't know i really like the idea of like the secret society of like you know super loyal guys that are are very um you know they look out for each other and they have all this influence right they can get anything done they can get any other guys anywhere else um but one of my favorite parts is when you first when you first see them right when he first calls bill murray's character yep and bill murray picks up the phone and he's like wow this is like a, a serious emergency but the first thing he does is help the customer in front of him. Yep. He says, he says it's very simple. And he points the direction that they need to walk. It's to the room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's great. It's like the, uh, this like, you know, it's like this handcrafted hospitality that is never far away. Uh, I love that so much. I do. And, and that's a, I felt like this movie had a good bit of repetition in the sequences. Uh, yeah. And this was one of my favorite ones was the phone, the basically the uh, uh, phone tag yeah phone tag that get, connects us with all of the different concierges and uh, and also just the specific lighting right because we would also get the zoom and the circle of light around them when they were making the call right. to the next place just you know furthering the aesthetic of this movie yeah I like watching them like hang up the phone and then call their operators right they would like some of them would click the thing twice some of them would click it once. Uh, just to like go to the next thing. Oh, it was it was clever and um, and then, and well and then like I yeah. said the Skittles <laughs> rainbow, but they they all did have a unique color that went along with the color of their hotel, and yeah. each one was introduced with a title card that had their specific key, which had a uh, I don't know what you would call it, but it's basically like a little keychain on it that had the yeah, color a little tassel or something yeah, a little tassel right? yeah that but it was the color of their hotel which uh, was super cool. They all adhere to this. Uh, color code. It's so sad that like hotels don't have keys anymore, isn't it? Like you get you go to a hotel and you get like a like a room key, which is like your little credit card thing. Um, I guess. Yeah, I mean, do, some of you them get, you don't even have to insert. You can just tap it against the thing, so you don't have to take it out of your wallet. That's pretty convenient. Yeah, I mean, like I guess people 
you know, have trouble with keys. But I don't know. There's something romantic about like having a key to a room. Yeah. You know, I don't know. You have to go stay in a castle with, for like, that. I was upset when um, my like room in college got rid of keys, physical keys, and they gave us like these little fob things. Yeah. Although I did have a lot of trouble with my keys. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the, uh, the best. You know, that I mean, the Grand Budapest is an old hotel. So that's yeah. also part of the uh, – and obviously the keys are a large part of the aesthetic of this movie. Um, and just like I thought I would, I'm using the word aesthetic too much. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's, it's a Wes Anderson film, and I uh, I keep going on to it. But, okay, uh, one actually one more thing I do want to talk about with Gustav, which I'm surprised sure. we haven't stumbled upon yet, is uh, his sexuality, the, the, okay. the, the aspect of him that is, uh, I guess – It makes you have an outsider, really. What's that? It kind of makes him an outsider. Yeah, I mean, for uh, for two reasons, right? Because we have the uh, mention of him being bisexual, but which is a funny line, <laughs> right? Because he says like, "Oh, how like he's like, if I'm you know a fruit, then why are you accusing me with sleeping with the old woman?" And Adrian Brody's character is like, "You're bisexual." Like it's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> Yeah, there's uh right and, and also like, I understand like, he's like it's like in that line he says I understand and appreciate the different like aspects or the, or the spectrum of sexuality that exists but I hate you because of it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, also he has uh intercourse with a lot of different old women. In fact, all blonde. Yes, all blonde. <laughs> And I liked the reason for them all being blonde because they just were like <laughs> there wasn't a good uh, at least zero wasn't aware of the exact reason. Just all of them ended up being blonde, uh, yeah. which I thought was was funny, too. And uh, and I, like it also leads to uh, thinking about how many of these situations has Gustav been in before, because all like if his whole thing is like being this ultimate concierge for old blonde women they're staying at the <laughs> grand budapest so they probably have some sort of money you know i'm sure that uh, this isn't the first time he's gotten tangled up in uh, the affairs of a, of a uh, one of his former lovers yeah that's actually a really good point uh especially since like she leaves him something of like a priceless work of art in the first will and then leaves him everything in the second will uh of, like in the contingent in the condition that she's murdered so that's pretty cool now and it makes perfect sense that she would do that because everybody came out of the woodwork to <laughs> claim association when she died yeah it was crazy so i i want to talk about because we kind of touched on this when we're mentioning the lobby boys with the concierge uh that phone tag but yeah. i felt like that was kind of a theme in this movie or something just a something that was touched on was uh, almost like passing on your skills to the next generation, specifically like from a man to like a growing boy. Uh, sure. Because, I mean, obviously we had that with the lobby boys and the concierges, um, but we also saw that kind of with like Zero being like in, when he was old and telling this story to the author, he was uh, kind of like bestowing his knowledge upon him. And then, even looser, I'm not sure if there's any real knowledge transfer going on here, but there is the presence of the younger boy uh, when the author is talking, or, or, yeah, when the author in real life is talking to the camera and his, I assume his young boy's, his son, runs into the room and he goes, don't do it! Don't do it! And he shoots him with the uh, toy gun. And I, for the life of me, I couldn't 
figure out why that was included except to kind of stick to this theme of uh like grown men having uh like a young boy by their side i guess i have a i have a theory about that but i think we'll get to that later um i do kind of like this idea too um i'm not sure where else it it shows up but it, it definitely seems like this passing on of knowledge or like this idea of um mentorship or something mm-hmm. is important um, in Wes Anderson's movies, like in the movie uh, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, which is stars uh, Bill Murray and Owen Wilson, it's about Owen Wilson um, like, taking over the dad's business because uh, his dad is like a Jacques Cousteau, like an underwater explorer, um, and his son is taking over for him in that same aspect. Um, I don't know. It's it's an interesting. Uh, kind of an element and i wonder if it reflects you know wes anderson's own experience with like older male mentors or something yeah i mean i wonder where he learned all his movie stuff if there was somebody yeah. there maybe who led him by the way but anyways just something i wanted to, to touch on but uh it kind of leads us naturally into our next topic which is zero who is the lobby boy who is mentored mentored by uh gustav that's right played by tony rivoli I want to say ravioli, but I know that's wrong. <laughs> he is phenomenal in this movie, by the way, from start to finish. If you don't finish. know who he is, he is the guy who plays um, – he's in Spider-Man Homecoming. He's like the bully. What's his name? Oh, really? Yeah, you didn't catch that? No, no, I didn't. Um, I know him from this movie, but as soon as I saw him in that, Tony Revolori. I I'd probably notice it if I saw Homecoming again. But he, uh, he's he's Flash Gordon, the the bully. Right, right. He calls him Penis Parker. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, he was. Yeah, he's he's great in this movie. Yeah, it, it, like a perfect. I I would would you say like co-star? I guess uh, to Gustav. I mean they they play really well off of each other, and he adheres to Gustav's expectations for a lobby boy almost immediately before Gustav really even expects them. Uh, yeah. Because he's there, he's it, like in the first scene you see Gustav, you see Zero, uh, yeah. and it's, Gustav is barking orders at him before he even realizes he doesn't know who he is. That's right. Um, and like when he first inter- he's introduced to him, you know, um, Gustav basically says that you have zero training, you have zero experience, and Zero says that he has zero family. Yep. So the the name is almost literal, and that he has nothing. Um, and he's there to prove himself. So I love that a lot. And of course, a lot of a big part of his story, which is not really told, is about Agatha, who is the girl that he loves, falls in love with while he's working at the Grand Budapest. Yes, and she's a is an interesting way to bring her into the story because we're introduced yeah. to her and then told we're not going to hear about her again. Right, because well, the whole thing is that she dies of some sort of sickness um, like off screen after the story ends. Um, and it's so painful even to old zero that he can't talk about it. Yeah. And, it, and it's he, so abrupt. Yeah. We know from the beginning that she ends up, well, I think we assume she ends up dead because he says he's not going to talk about her, but the story ends seemingly with a happy ending. And then he just, casually mentions that she died of some disease that they shortly after became easily curable yeah so it which it, it's extra it's, it's painful just a tragic it's a tragic death and it's but like 
I don't know. It's not part of the story, right? He's telling the story about how he got the hotel. He's telling the story of Gustav. He's not telling the story of Agatha. True. And part of that reason, he's uh, purposely avoiding it uh, just so that he doesn't have to relive it. But she's, I mean, she's such an interesting girl, too. She has this huge birthmark, the shape of Mexico on her face. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, exactly like Mexico. It's not even, like, it's not like it sort of looks like Mexico. It has, like, what's that called? The Baja region or something? Right, like the little tail hanging off the back. Yeah. yeah, like it's like a perfect <laughs> shape of Mexico on her face. It's so funny. And then um, she uh, she works for the ice cream shop. What is that? Is, was, okay, were they like little pastries or cakes or were they ice cream? I was so confused about what <laughs> Mendel's was. I'm pretty sure Mendel's is delicious. a pastry like place. Like they're cakes. Okay. Okay. It was like a lot of icing, I guess. Maybe yeah. Like one of those ones that have like the special, like you ever see those decorative icings that people do where they like build like whole structures out of icing? Yes. I I, I considered Mendel's a a bit of like the uh, cake boss kind of place where people get the okay. really extravagant pastries that are just as delicious as they are uh, nice to look at. I always felt I felt like they were more or closer to like a um, Cold Stone Creamery or something, where like because they had because they had like a whole carts full of boxes of stuff right but i never i didn't get they seem like nice delicacies but they also seem like they are you know they're available to the public yeah but did you um as far as like them being like pastries as opposed to like ice cream i never got the impression that they are refrigerated in any way that's true and they never see a melt or anything so it must have been some sort of like hard candy of some sort i don't know well i think it was just like things that you bake right because you see her Hmm. uh with a bunch of flour when she's work and uh, Agatha's working at Mendel's, yeah. and uh, and she even helps with the prison escape by baking the tools into the. <laughs> Which was so funny! Oh my gosh, because <laughs> the the <laughs> I was so confused by that too. Like, so the guy, so the scene is set up where there's like a prison guard and he's cutting through all of the food right. to make sure there's nothing hidden inside it, and he comes across the the pastries, the Mendel's pastries, and they're shaped just like digging tools. <laughs> And she, he just looks at them and then passes them along. And I was like, oh, are they, like, too thin for him to cut into? Or is it, like, this is, like, a joke? Someone sent, like, imagine, like, there wasn't anything hidden inside, right? Yeah. And, like, somebody just sent a bunch of digging tool-shaped pastries to someone in jail. <laughs> well, from my perspective, <laughs> I, I didn't think that they looked explicitly like digging tools. I thought it was just because of their odd shape he didn't want to chop them up and just ruin them and cause it to I be see. like because they were so thin and uh and just like chopping them in half would almost completely change the what what you were eating uh so i felt like that was the disguise they're like nobody's gonna chop up a mendel's just yeah. you know because it's mendel's so uh which i thought was a clever way to get it in there yeah, maybe that is maybe that's exactly what you're saying they can't ruin something so perfect. It's a work of art. Right, and and yeah, and, and I think that that relies on them not being able to tell that they're shaped like digging tools. Uh, <laughs> I thought they, I thought that was obvious, but no, that's so funny because they don't even ha- try to hide it though. Like, right? It's right. not like they put them in little rectangles. They put them in sh- things that look just like little like hammers and chisels. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so Agatha just, uh, Agatha is a very t- uh, talented and. Uh, capable woman uh right. which makes her in my opinion like a uh a capable or, or like an appropriate uh mate for zero yeah i i agree and i don't think she's developed super well but it's also like explicit why they're not doing that 
Uh, so I feel like the lack of focus on her isn't necessarily a flaw that I, I can really, you know, say with any certainty. Agreed. Anyway, let's go back to Zero. So um, one of my favorite things uh, they talk about is it's another sequence is when um, uh, Gustav is explaining to Zero what a good lobby boy is, right? A good lobby boy is invisible, but always in sight. He remembers what people hate, and he anticipates the need, the client's needs before the needs are needs, which is like a funny way of saying that. Yeah. Um, but what I'm, like, I felt like that part where he he's carrying the chair right for that one scene in like that little montage, and then later in the movie, they're both uh, Gustav and Israel are looking at Boy with Apple because Gustav has just been gifted that in the inheritance, and Zero brings over a chair. Um, which I felt like it was an ex- like a direct reference to that scene where Zero was anticipating a need before the need ah. was a need. Before they needed to run out with it in a hurry, let's steal it right now. <laughs> right, no, uh, uh, agreed. And they, they they wordlessly have an exchange there where they just look at each other and then he knows. it's uh, yeah. he, gets, he gets the need before it's uh, ever expressed as a need. Yeah, which is cool. And... Um, yeah, I, I really like that. And I really like his character. I feel like he does such a good job of, you know, exemplifying this, like, hardworking but naive guy, right? Like, he doesn't know a lot, but he's willing to learn and willing to do whatever Gustav says um, to help him. So, and, yeah, there's that one part where they're they're in the prison, or they escape the prison, right? And um, Zero doesn't have anything. Zero doesn't have the disguises. He doesn't have, like, a getaway plan or anything. He doesn't have a safe house. But the one thing that makes Gustav the most mad is he doesn't have his perfume. Yeah. <laughs> Gustav loves that perfume. Oh well, and gosh. then we get to see Gustav uh, lose his cool a little bit in that situation and yeah. uh, insult Zero's homeland. Uh, where right. And then Zero reveals that he's a refugee from wherever he's from. Yeah, and his whole family was killed basically in front of him, which is terrifying. Um, but But, yeah, I mean... I don't know. I think that goes into this bigger theme too. This idea that like the hotel is a safe place, it's a refuge from like the horrors of the real world. It's 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 like it certainly is a refuge for Zero, who is literally a refugee. Yes, and it like I don't know. It goes back to this thing I I keep going. I keep saying this thing I keep going back to, which I keep going back to, which is this uh, faint glimmer of civilization, right? It's this idea that. Um, everything outside is hectic and crazy, but in the hotel, you know, everything is safe and orderly. So, I don't know. I think that um, that one scene with uh, Gustav and Zero is super impactful and super powerful in this, you know, overall lighthearted movie. Um, so, I really like uh, the Boy with Apple painting. I think it's so funny. Um, just because it's just like this, it looks like an ancient painting. It looks like a Renaissance painting, doesn't it? I don't think it actually exists, though. I don't think Boy with Apple is a real painting. It wouldn't surprise me if it didn't exist. It seemed like it was one of those things where you just say, like, it, it was introduced that it has high value, and because of the way art works, it has high value as a result, right? Like, uh, I know that Gustav talks about it as a masterpiece, but for me, I can take it or leave it. I think that it's, uh, it just has that prestige that's associated with it. Yeah, and I think that's like this kind of implied history that's kind of put in this movie. Like when the author is talking about like Zubrowska, which is a fake country, and he's talking about 
um, the people in it, and he talks, and he says, when when he introduces Zero Mus- uh, Mufasta, he's or Mustafa, he says, um, certainly many of you have heard of him. You know, like he implies that this guy is super famous, even though of course he's made up for the story. Right. So it's it's interesting how, like, that helps add weight to it, right? It it implies this deeper history that doesn't actually exist, but because they speak with such confidence about it, it it almost seems like part of a real world, right? It's a way of building a world or a history without having to do a whole lot of work. No, agreed, especially with the way that Gustav reacts when he learns that he'll be awarded the painting where he's his yeah, first he says, oh my yeah he's like oh wow like immediately and right. you kind of you understand that they they get the message across to you that this is a valuable piece of art uh that it, at least it is in this world right uh and i just i actually just thought of this uh as we're talking about it now but the boy with apple is supposed to be a boy at reaching like his maturity and he's just about he's just crossing the threshold threshold into manhood and i think that that goes well with this theme of the like the young boys like kind of the uh yeah the budding manhood or like the mentor mentee relationship yeah i can see that for sure and how gustav sees that such a beautiful painting and almost just like a beautiful thing that the concierges pass on their skills and knowledge to the next generation to their yeah it's like a it's almost like a a picture about potential, right? And he sees the Lobby Boys as this the potential to be as great as him. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a really good reading of that. Um, yeah, I just looked it up, and apparently, uh, this this uh, piece of art was made for the movie. Nice. <laughs> it was a guy as a check a, a check painter. Uh, no, 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 no. It was it was made by a Czech painter in the or told it was made by a Czech painter in the movie. Oh, okay. It's actually made by an English painter named Michael Taylor, um, who was commissioned to make the the uh, the art for the for the movie. So, is the painting actually worth something in real life? I mean, probably after the movie. <laughs> I, well, because I would love to get after watching this movie. I think that would be a great piece to have in your house. It's such a good one. It looks it <laughs> looks so good, doesn't it? Like it it really does look like a Renaissance painting or something. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like something you would see in an art museum and you'd be like, Why is this popular? Like why do people like this? It's just so <laughs> bafflingly mundane. That, w- <laughs> but, that would be no, it's so good. That would be an epic YouTube prank it, to like hang it up in an actual art gallery oh, man. and get people to appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, no, I I like that. I like that a lot. Okay, so let's like talk a little bit about the the prison escape, then. Yes, uh, which is such a, a great part of this movie. It's such a hilarious montage, um, and it has a lot of heart in it. Yeah, well, first off, I want to point out the uh, kind of the juxtaposition between jail and a hotel, because okay. they're both places that people stay, and uh, and and in this movie, they're both places that have this. And just like all the scenes, I guess they have like this color focus where the hotel is uh, really colorful and uh, saturated. We have the jail, which is completely monochromatic gray and white. Uh, right. And, but, and of course the, uh, the people who work there wear uniforms. Right. Exactly. It just, I mean, just <laughs> like at a hotel. So I think that's, I definitely think that's intentional. Okay. Yeah. And I think, well, you see Gustav serving food, right? And he's like, but he's not just serving food. He's not just going around asking people if they want some, some mush. He's trying to convince them to have it. 
You know, yeah. he's like, this mush is actually pretty good today. It's, it's still warm. <laughs> you need a little bit of salt. You're going to be good. You're going to have a good time with this salt, it, with this mush. And, and he's really selling it. Yeah. And it, it pays off uh, by getting that hulking guy with the scar <laughs> on his face. face. Yeah. He, he enjoys that mush. Yeah, he sure does. And it saves him in the end. Uh, okay. He calls him, he calls him a sweet, kind man, right? Yeah. When he murders someone for his, for Gustav's benefit. Well, um, also, another inmate that I thought was really interesting was Harvey Keitel. At first, I didn't recognize him. Yeah, he's totally bald. And, like, <laughs> he's not wearing a shirt, but he has all these ridiculous tattoos on him. Uh, like, one that's like a it's like a knife. It looks like it's buried into his chest. Did you see that one? It's like half a knife. To, t- painted on to tell you the truth, I didn't I didn't look too closely at his, at his tattoos. Okay. I thought, like, for some reason, I thought the map was on him. Maybe I watched Prison Break or something recently. <laughs> The guy with all these tattoos. Oh no, the uh, the map was on the back of something, and uh, Gustav yeah. was really interested to find out who did it. Uh, because <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> oh my gosh, because because he, yeah, he's like, oh wow, you, like Ludwig, you have a beautiful line. And then, but after looking at it for five seconds, he immediately realizes the biggest problem that they have to solve because the map is so well drawn and Gustav is so perceptive. <laughs> so funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so that that whole sequence, another like beautiful sequence was the actual escape, where um, yeah, where it starts off with Harvey Keitel. As soon as the lights turn out, Harvey Keitel is like, "Let's blow!" <laughs> and then they <laughs> they all set into this carefully coordinated plan that's gonna get them out. And again, one of my favorite things about like th- this is another situation where the the visual of this movie, the uh, the platformer kind of view of uh, a prison escape. It sure. is used to perfection because everything you see, they're either going like down something or left and right where they go to grab the ladders. Uh, you get you, you. It's almost a humorous way to film it because you only see the man at the front pick up the ladder and he moves to the right and the camera stays put and the ladder seemingly goes on and on, extending through <sighs> the frame until they finally uh, get to the end of it. Yeah. I wonder if they actually had a ladder that long. It was so it was like a ridiculously long, and of course it pays off because they they need to go pretty far down. Um, yeah, and then there's that one like really nice scene um, when they open up that like hatch and then they look down and they see the five guards arranged in a circle and they look and the guards look up and they see the five criminals in a circle. I love um, that scene because beautiful like symmetry there. That scene felt a little bit. Like in Glorious Bastards, where, um, or or just, it's it was a situation where their actions did have serious consequences. You, up until that point, it's a little bit goofy, and it's it's like everything's going right. Like, oh, here we go, descending through the hole in the cell, and now you know using the ladder to climb and all that stuff. But uh, Gunter has to, like, as soon as he looks down, Gunter knows. Well. I have to shank these guys or we're not going to make it out. <laughs> and then he basically pulls it off, but he loses his own life in the process. And uh, nobody, everyone realizes that that is what was necessary to keep going. Uh, so yeah. kind of the gravity of the situation hits you, which I think this movie does a good job of because a lot of it is fun and whimsical, but you get these harsh realities that get injected uh, and sometimes to a startling extent uh, in the case of when they sh- uh, when e- uh, Edward Norton lifts the head of... Um, the other concierge's sister, the one with the cleft foot. It's the uh, the bu- the butler's. Oh, the sister. Buster's, yeah, the butler's sister with the cleft Serge. foot. Serge. Uh, 
uh, yeah, Serge X's sister, yes. Uh, when they lift her head out of the basket, it's kind of like, oh, here we go. Like, violence is real, and yeah. it's frightening. Uh, and that this is another situation when Gunter had to jump down there and stab everybody. But um, Which is, like, one of the only on-screen deaths in this whole movie. Yes. A lot of people, like, die, but you, you don't see him die. And, I, man, you, all you see when they're fighting is, like, the... Um, like the expressions of the criminals looking down and like awe at what Gunter is doing. Yeah. And then of course you see Gunter's like stabbing the guard and the guard stabbing Gunter at the same time. And it's like this epic brawl that took place, but you couldn't even see it. It reminds me of Isle of Dogs when they, they read the dogs got into a big scrap and it was just like a, a bunch of smoke, <laughs> yeah. like a bunch of like, like a cloud would appear like, and all these limbs would be flying out of it, but you couldn't actually see what was happening. It is. That's exactly like uh, what that is. And then, uh, and that clears the path for them to continue moving. Although, like, I mean, I really want to express how that was, like, a reality next to all these silly, like, whimsical prison escape sequences. Like, crawling under the beds of the prison guards and, like, jumping over each individual prison guard sleeping <laughs> there. Like, it's so silly. Uh, and then they have that, you know, Yeah, but I Gunter. think that's part of this. This movie is, like... Uh, I, I want to say aesthetic, but I'm trying not to. <laughs> this is part of this kind of theme that goes along with this movie of like this hospitality as a refuge from the real world, right? Yeah. Like the hotel is like this oasis in this desert of the real, to quote the Matrix. Um, it's, you can't get away from it, right? All of these terrible things are happening all the time. And no matter like, how much of a good attitude you have about it or how much like order you restore to the universe as you know as Gustav attempts to do um you're you can't get away from it it's always going to be there and you have to deal with it head on sometimes I don't know it was it's I don't think it's out of place like you're, you're saying like it's um you know it's, it's funny that juxtaposition uh but I really do think it fits in with this big theme of like you only see, like Wes Anderson is showing you only what he wants you to see, but he can't help but let like the realness of the world seep in. Right. It is. Uh, it even extends to the end of the prison scene when they finally do escape and meet up with Zero. They're uh, ex- attempting to exchange pleasantries, but uh, Harvey Keitel and the other two see a van that they can hijack and they say no time for pleasantries like good luck and then they just take off and you get to see them like murder the bus driver and steal the bus <laughs> that was so while funny. gustav and zero are exchanging pleasantries and complaining that there's no perfume so yes <laughs> i uh, i see where you it is very intentional um, um there was one other thing with the prison thing which is when gustav first arrives in prison by the way, he's only in a prison for a week, which is great. After only a week, they like trust him enough to bring him in on their escape plan. Um, the yeah, when he's in there, he's like he gets he, sh- he shows up to talk to Zero because Zero goes to visit him, and he's all beat up. He has like a black eye and stuff. And um, he's like, "What happened to you?" And he's like, "And cause I can't remember exactly what he says, but he says something to the effect of you 'You're not going to get very far if you're going to be a candy ass.'" And then he says, um, "I had to like." beat up a cow like a sniveling coward pinky something um but he's actually become a dear friend yeah. you'll ma- meet him i hope and he he did end up meeting pinky <laughs> he did meet him <laughs> oh that's so funny. yeah i mean it seems like gustav is never in a situation that he doesn't have some sort of I- instinct for uh yeah uh, it's prison. just like this i think this is like this charisma i think is like the the underlying thing more than anything because you see this at the at the end too, when he's uh he's in front of the court and the, like he's making the jury just laugh, uh, his jokes right yeah. like, 
it's just like he has this like ability to connect to people that just is almost like a superpower because he can just get worm his way into anything and uh, people just trust him. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's a skill that would be helpful for a host, right? To make everyone feel comfortable with you. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, um, I think we should uh, talk about um, one of the most important characters in this movie, which is Jopling, <laughs> played by Dennis Leary. Except he d- isn't played by Dennis Leary. He's played by Willem Dafoe. Even <laughs> Are you sure? I wasn't. Uh- I honestly wasn't. <laughs> At first, like I always am, whenever these two, one of these two, is on the, on screen, because when I saw him, I was like, "No way, my man, my man, Dennis, Dennis Leary, Leary, fresh off of Small Soldiers, is in a Wes Anderson film, <laughs> and it's not him. It's definitely Willem Dafoe, and he is a menacing presence in this movie. He truly." I think there's there's actually like a gif of Willem Dafoe doing like a reaction gif of him that's that is pretty popular or, or was pretty popular at one point where he kind of makes a worried face and uh, it's it's like almost creepy and people like edited it to make it even more worried and more unsettling to look at. Sure. And uh, but I think that that all is a result of Willem Dafoe having a kind of unique face like facial structure even if i yeah. get him confused with dennis leary and uh it, it's in this movie it's it's used to make him almost seem like this like beast or animal or like predator uh right. that well, isn't, isn't like his his teeth sharpened or something like there's something up with his teeth in this movie too yes it, it did seem like he almost had fangs it was uh a little bit of a reference to interview with the vampire if we're going to talk about another yeah, podcast yeah. episode <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I really liked him, and like, I really liked him, like being a just a menace. You know, yeah. he's like the bodyguard. He's the bulldog, and he's just kind of there in the background, like getting things done, killing people indiscriminately. Right, and and wearing um, brass knuckles. And a big yeah. part of who he is is cracking his knuckles. Because uh, mm. I, when I was rewatching it, I was because now I, you know I know who he is sitting in the background when uh, they're when they're at the uh, reading of the will. Right. And the only thing he sees, he doesn't have any dialogue in that scene. You just he, like when they point at him, you just hear him go, like he like <laughs> cracks his knuckles by like clenching his fists, and uh, it's a big part of who he is. And there's other scenes in the movie where you're just supposed to know that it's him based on being able to see his very uh, easily identifiable brass knuckles. That's right. I, that's, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, there's a part where he's on the phone. You don't even see his face, but yet I know who he is. Uh, just by the sound of his voice and uh, what his his you know menacing uh, fingers. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking um, of fingers, yeah. such a another example of like the uh, horrifying reality and of violence in this movie yeah. was when he <laughs> closes the door on uh, Jeff Goldblum's fingers. That's right. Yeah, Jeff Goldblum plays Deputy Kovacs, which is like he's like the the lawyer in charge of the estate, and he's also like in and the go-between between the owner of the Grand Budapest and um, uh, Gustav. So he like uh, he's yeah his he was his emissary, right? Yeah, and so he um, he's like talking to Dimitri, who is the played by Adrian Brody, um, and he's saying like there's a lot of stuff we don't understand about this will. Like I think we should you know wait and let this happen. Agreed? And Dimitri's like not agreed. Yep. <laughs> Not agreed. Not agreed. <laughs> Not agreed. 
<laughs> and then, of course, Kovacs' cat is thrown out the window by Jopling, and then uh, Kovacs stupidly doesn't go to a public place. He goes to a museum that's closing in 14 minutes and gets his fingers chopped Oh, and off. I liked how the museum time remaining was self-updating. Because <laughs> yes. when I walked it, I was like, 15, uh, the first thing I thought when I saw that sign, I was like, 15 minutes? Okay, maybe they have a sign that they put out every day when there's 15 minutes left. But then when... Uh, when a Jopling walked in right after, it said 14 minutes. I'm like, there's no way that guy got up and updated it. So. No, I think that's exactly what happened. <laughs> I think that's exactly what happened. As soon as he, as soon as he left, the, the guy got up, turned the thing over, so it said 14, and then sat back down. To, and you never even saw it, just because it's just... <laughs> well, uh, to further discourage people from coming in, because he clearly wasn't happy that Jeff Goldblum walked in. He's like... I mean, would you be? I mean, it's only 15 minutes left in the museum. No. To do. And yeah, this isn't just for museums. There's a, like, I, I worked retail back in the day. Walking in to a store when there's only 15 minutes left is a bad thing to do. Don't do that. Yeah. Definitely go much earlier than that. It's ridiculous. Unless you like know exactly what you can get you want and can get in and out. Yeah. Well, definitely don't go in there just to look. (laughs) (laughs) Buy something at the very least. Which is the only thing you can do in a museum. But yeah, but instead so, of buying something, uh, instead of doing any Jeff buying, Goldblum Jeff Goldblum was his life. Well, yeah, he was <laughs> dying, and uh, and it was a it, like, I don't know, it was a memorable death scene, especially with the way that we get to see his fingers lo- like laid out on the ground, and Dennis yeah. Leary, I mean, <laughs> Willem Dafoe individually picking them up with his uh, brass knuckle fingers. I will count that as success. I successfully confused you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, he plays like a minor part in this, but he is like. Oh, one more thing that before we move on from him, um, the way he dies, he's um, yes, he's trying to kick uh, Gustav off of a cliff. Gustav is hanging on by his fingertips, and of course, reciting romantic poetry as he thinks he's about to follow his death. And Jopling's at the top, kicking the snow, trying to get him to let go. And then Zero comes out from behind him and pushes him, gives him a good old, like, shove, pushes him right off the cliff. Yeah, well, okay, so that whole, well, yeah, that was one thing I may be able to mark down as a flaw, maybe, is that Willem Dafoe getting pushed off the cliff was the most predictable thing in this movie. (laughs) <laughs> as soon as we had the classic cliffhanger and the like instead of just i don't know stepping on your fingers i'm going to stomp on the snow so the cracks spread you could yeah. you could almost start your watch and be like all right t minus like 30 <laughs> seconds till he gets saved by zero who's definitely going to come push uh willem defoe and that's what he did uh, yeah which i don't i don't think that that's like a massive part of this movie or that's a massive flaw in it but uh i guess as soon as they set that up i was like okay this is exactly what's going to happen and then it did yeah, and of course, uh, you know, as soon as uh, like Gustav seems resigned to die um, at the hands of Jopling, but as soon as he's saved by Zero, he freaks out. He's like, "Oh shit! Oh shit!" <laughs> so well, yeah, and, uh, and I love how he imp- like was saying his speech. He's like, "Oh, I'm gonna die. Better go out yeah. like like a badass." Right, I've, like, I've prepared for this moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think that like goes back to this kind of you know division that we've been talking about. This idea that like you know it's just like a a romantic way to die, right? Like he's gonna be pushed off a cliff by a villain, but of course he's not, and then he's he's saved by the other hero of the story, Zero. And like that stark contrast between like you know falling to your death and then being saved is like wakes you up from your reverie and makes you aware of like the realness of the situation in a way. Yeah. Even if it is kind of a cliche. No, I. It's still like you know what I mean. Like it's it's like he's 
he's resigned a certain to a certain way like he's thinking it's going to be this way and then as soon as it's not he you know changes and it becomes this real moment of of fear or or like relief or something you know right it's something i guess <laughs> he thought for sure his death was certain as soon as he found out he could get out of it he's like yes i will i'll, I'll get out of it i yeah, exactly. uh, well that whole sequence the whole skiing and uh sledding sequence is so outside of reality like it's almost cut out of like a peewee herman segment uh with the whole like the cameras at the front of the sled so they're they're not even moving realistically like they're on the sled uh, it's but it sticks with the same constraints of having like the straight on camera uh right in front of them and the background is kind of moving away from you and uh yeah. and then the aerial views looking straight down at this like i don't even know what was that was that like stop motion I think it was. I'm pretty sure it was stop motion. It didn't seem like it seemed like miniatures, right? Um, and it, the way it was moving and everything seemed like it was, you know, I don't know, too smooth or something. Right. It, so, it seemed definitely different from reality, but also it just seemed, yeah. in my opinion, kind of cartoony, because yeah. especially the way the race ends, where they crash and Zero <laughs> is like like head first, stuck in the snow with his feet <laughs> like yeah, in the air. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, um, it definitely it definitely is stop motion, and there are some uh, small amounts of that throughout this movie, uh, especially like shots from far away or like the outside of the hotel. There's like a little like tra- tra- tram trolley thing that's like on a yes on a slant, and that that's all like miniatures or stop motion. That was pretty cool. Actually, uh, that's another thing I want to uh, just bring up real quick was when they were chasing or they were trying to find uh, Surge X. When they mm-hmm. headed up to the monastery or wherever all those like priest guys were, <laughs> yeah. they they get in one of those stop motion lifts and then they switch into the other one and they get up to the monastery. But I noticed that that sequence was musically influenced uh, because mm-hmm. there's this kind of like uh, I don't know if it's like a drum tapping in the background. It kind of creates this consistent rhythm and it's it's very light uh, and it's it's just the percussion, but the scenery starts to create the rest of the song or like the rest of the music with it. Uh, because when mm-hmm. the lift stops, it creaks back and forth and it makes two distinct creaks. And those creaks are always in a rhythm that goes along with that tapping in the background. Oh, uh, I didn't even notice that. That's really cool. Yeah. And, and uh, they keep asking, are you Gustav uh, of Budapest or whatever? Like they, they keep asking him yeah. that question and he keeps answering. Uh-huh. That keeps being his answer. And the, the way they ask and the way he answers all goes along with that rhythm. And it, reaches this sort of climax when they get up into the monastery and they're told to pretend to sing because the song in the church continues that exact same rhythm non-stop but now you have this full voice uh entered into this chorus singing along to it and it's uh I, it's really satisfying it's really cool to bring that uh the kind of rhythm and the and the artistic sense yeah. of this movie into the soundtrack as well uh which i think this the soundtrack on this is uh, goes along with the. I'm I'm trying to avoid aesthetic here, but I'll use it again. <laughs> goes along with the aesthetic, but in this situation, it's more of the focus, right? And and the uh, right. the music that's happening in the scene uh, is 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 almost like a musical in the sense where it's uh, beyond the reality of the scene, right? Like the sure what goes on in the scene is rhythmic with the music that you're hearing. Yes, yeah, I mean that's a really good point, and I, I it just helps build up that tension of that moment, right? Because you don't know what's going about to happen. Um, and it does. It, it adds to the bizarreness of that situation because they keep being yeah. told, just do this stuff, and they keep obeying. 
and just hoping that it'll lead them to where they want to go, which eventually it does. Right. It's totally bizarre. Okay, one other thing about that part, which I found was inconsistent. Um, when they okay, so when they get onto the the cable car like thing, I'm noticing that like between this and Isle of Dogs, <laughs> Wes Anderson loves cable cars. Um, he does. <laughs> they, he, he gets they get into the one right, and it's going up to the top right, and then they cross with another one that's going down, and then they get into the one going down, and then they arrive at the up one. <laughs> oh really? I have to take another look. At least that's the way it seems. I mean, it's cut. There's a bunch of cuts there, so it's possible that like maybe the car switched directions or something, and that family that was in them with, in there with them never makes it to their location. <laughs> but like, I don't know. It, it just seems like they didn't need to switch if they were just trying to get away, right? They would just end up back where they started. Right. Anyway, um, yeah, that that whole scene was really cool. I really like that. Um, and what you're saying, how the music builds is, is just perfect. Yeah, I, I, uh, if you want to check out any part of this movie again, I recommend that you check that part out again because it's a really satisfying sequence, the way the music works t- uh, well together with the scene. Why do you want to be a lobby boy? Who wouldn't? At the Grand Budapest, sir. And so my life began. Junior lobby boy in training under the strict command of Monsieur Gustave H. Many of the hotel's most valued and distinguished guests came for him. I love you. I love you. She was dynamite in the sack, by the way. She was 84. Mm, I've had older. This was also when I met Agatha. She's charming. She's so charming. Is he flirting with you? Yes. I approve of this union. I became his pupil, and he was to be my counselor and guardian. The police are here. Tell them I'll be right down. She's been murdered, and you think I did it. Hey! Stop! You're looking so well, darling. You really are. I don't know what sort of cream they've put on you down at the morgue, but I want some. This is Madame D's last will and testament. To Monsieur Gustave H. I bequeath a painting known as Boy with Apple. Wow. What? Who's Gustave H? I'm afraid that's me, darling. If I learn you ever once laid a finger on my mother's body, living or dead... I go to bed with all my friends. We need to make a plan for your survival. Hide this. It's in code and you might need a magnifying glass to read it, but it tells you exactly where and how to find Boy with Apple. I'm a baker. I'm not a fence, if that's the term. I want roadblocks at every junction for 50 kilometers. I want rail blocks at every train station for 100 kilometers. Get in! I want 50 men and 10 bloodhounds ready in five minutes. You can't arrest him simply because he's a bloody immigrant. Take your hands off my lobby boy! Have you ever been questioned by the authorities? Yes, on one occasion. What, what? I was arrested and tortured by the rebel militia after the mm-hmm. desert uprising. Right. Well, you know the drill then. Zip it. All right. So I want to talk about potential flaws in this movie. And to tell you the truth, I like this movie a lot, so I wasn't exactly looking for big flaws. But one thing that I felt like maybe was a little bit inconsistent was the way that they wrapped up the uh, the problem with 
the deceased woman's estate. They uh, finding the second copy of the second will was enough to really just solve everything. And Dimitri kind of gave me the impression that he doesn't play by the rules, and he kind of muscles his way, or, or, or like uses his influence to get his way. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it seems like there could have been a way that I don't know. It seems like there could have been a way that he made that work for himself, right? Especially since she, the only thing she originally left Gustave was the picture, the, which was, of course, priceless, I guess. But, like, can't be, do you think it's worth more than the house that they were in? Or, like, no way. the hotel? No way. Or, like, whatever else she owned? I mean, uh, she's kind of, it's kind of in, indistinct how much, how rich she was. But, like, it definitely seems like he is so set on having this picture just because they, he wants to have every little thing, right? Like he doesn't want to have anything out of his hands. He wants, he wants to scrounge for every penny. Um, it's not, you know, it's not enough that she left him the house and everything. She had, he has to have everything. Right. So it does seem, you're right. It does seem strange that he kind of gives up after that. He just kind of runs away. Although it's also, he's also like probably the one that killed her. So I don't know. And, I mean, uh, I'm okay with the idea that you have something that kind of solves it right there. Like, the second copy of the second will, that was kind of the key to this whole thing. So, I mean, I'm not saying that the resolution of the conflict is bad, but I just felt like Dimitri's way of dealing with the way that the will is handed out uh, changed for some reason on the second copy of the second will uh, without explanation. And, uh, yeah. I don't know, maybe he just felt like Edward Norton was too imposing of a force and he didn't want to go against him. <laughs> uh, which also, just real quick, I just remembered one of my favorite scenes was when Edward Norton rushes into the room where they're all shooting at each other and he asks what's going on and they summarize yeah. it by accusing each other of certain things and he goes, uh, all right, everybody's under arrest. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And yeah, like um, uh, that shootout seems so awesome too. Like it... it it looks amazing. I love seeing like a Wes Anderson take on like a shootout and like how it's shot from the ground. You can see the beauty of the hotel with like the gunshots going off between the halls and everything, and everybody's going after each other, but like nobody's really getting hit. It's awesome. It's really fun. Yeah. And it's just like I don't know. It's a really intense scene, and it makes you like I don't know. It makes you kind of clench up, especially since um, Zero is running through the middle of it to try to save Agatha. Yeah, very uh, a brave young lad. But uh, so yeah, I, I don't. I want to say that that's like somewhat of a flaw. I just I don't want us to solely heap praise on this movie, which is so easy to do. <laughs> I know. Uh, but I guess if I had to put something up there for a potential flaw, it's that Dimitri's motivations somewhat change or the second copy of the second will. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Something watching this movie the second time, I'm not as I didn't like it as much as when I first saw it. I'm not sure if that's because I saw it you know, on the small screen this time before I saw it in the theater or if I, I mean, I took a like more frequent breaks throughout just because I was taking notes and stuff. So maybe that kind of broke up the rhythm, but I don't know. It's like, um, there's something about it that just kind of, I don't know. Maybe it was kind of the forced feeling that you get with all of these Wes Anderson movies where it's like, everything is so, everything's so careful and you always feel like you're taking forever to get anywhere. I don't know. Something about it is, um, it's not perfect, yeah, and I can't put what my finger on exactly why, but it is extremely enjoyable. Agreed. Okay, so one, I I think this movie has like this big central theme. 
um, which we've talked about a little bit about how uh, the hotel is like an oasis um, from the depravity of humanity, if you will. But I think this kind of extends further. You could say that Wes Anderson's films are an oasis from the typical Hollywood studio film. Instead of all of this needless violence and, you know, reckless um, endangerment or, you know, destruction of property that's just so inherent of all these like superhero right or uh or you know actors that are different from the ensemble cast he always uses (laughs) (laughs) yeah movies that don't have bill murray yeah Um, he rescues you from the oasis of movies that lack edward norton (laughs) i mean that's a good point um the I think I think there is something there. There's something about like you know the stale Hollywood tropes or like movies like Transformers, which almost have no heart in them at all. Um, th- these movies are like you know what you know what you're gonna you know what to expect when you walk into it. You know, right. it's kind of like the hotel in a, in a sense where like it's always the same. You always expect such great hospitality, especially when it's in such good hands. You know, like Wes Anderson. So when you you go see this kind of movie you kind of have this like expectation um but you're also pleasantly surprised in a way it's this kind of um safe place where art is valued and like every detail is important it's something that you don't see in a lot of other movies and um for that reason you're like um the hotel like works as a metaphor but also this deeper idea that, like, um, you know, everything outside of it is closing in constantly. Gustav is constantly fighting against this, you know, uh, awful, the awful side of humanity. He's trying to keep out the Nazis. He's trying to keep out um, these, you know, horrid things. Trying to keep uh, order inside of, you know, this chaotic world by, you know, having control over this orderly hotel in the same way that, Wes Anderson is constantly fighting against these, you know, uh, uh, cliches or these um, returns to violence, right? Like these celebrations of violence. I want to sure. Say. So, and, and but he can't do it really because like these those things seep in in his movie just as these things seep into the hotel. There's a shootout in the hotel, and it's a shootout in a Wes Anderson movie. You know, that's almost like a, a cliche that you see in these kind of modern ma- action movies, but um somehow that you know I, I think that metaphor works there what do you think no I, I agree i mean it's uh he brings you these ni- this pleasant imagery and uh memorable dialogue and friendly characters but it's not without jeff goldblum getting his fingers chopped off and murdered <laughs> and uh, gunter shanking a bunch of uh, like uh, guards and also getting killed uh so yeah, yeah i think that that's a uh, it, it it's so self-referential, at the same time just being its its own thing. Uh, I think that's, that's yeah exactly. It it is like independent of itself. Like it, it, its independence is what makes it like its own meta commentary. Right. right. Like it's saying that like you know come come flock to this beautiful piece of art um, because it's your last refuge against the depravity or the what is it called what does he say the butcher the slaughterhouse yeah. barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity that was once known as movies <laughs> anyway 
I really like that uh, interpretation. I think that's, um, I think that's kind of what this is about. I'm sure there's even deeper levels to this too that I, we're not picking up on, but um, I, I do think that, because I, I, I was wondering like why he was choosing a hotel to talk about, like why that metaphor specifically for you know morality, and I think it does hold water there where like the concierge is the director of the hotel, right? He's the one who oversees every detail, just as Wes Anderson does in all his movies. I wonder how similar Wes Anderson on set is to maybe like Gustav on a di- on a normal day at the uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. Like, is is he really strict about the people who he works with on his projects? Is he, uh, you know, kind of micromanaging them? I, I wonder, because all these projects get, you know, a Wes Anderson film, right? That's what it's called. But obviously mm-hmm. more than just Wes Anderson worked on this thing. So Yeah, and I mean, the, the Oscar, I mean, this movie won four Oscars, and all of the Oscars went to, to nothing that Wes Anderson did. It was all the costume design, the makeup, and all that stuff, which he had a part in, but he didn't, you know, that wasn't something he oversaw. So it's it's this group effort, I guess, which you which is true too, right? Like it's not like he did every single piece of lighting in this movie, but he re- he hired people, or relied on people that were going to take that seriously. There is a scene that scene with um when Harvey Keitel slaps Zero across his face. Yes. He says, good luck, kid. Apparently that was shot 42 times um, until Anderson was satisfied. Um, and Kaitel slapped um, River Laurie every single time. Wow. <laughs> That's what it says in IMDb. <laughs> so you got to slap 42 times for that one scene, which is hilarious when you think about it, like the context of that, because it's so quick and weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if he, uh, how, like, how much he micromanages it, but I, I mean, I know these movies take forever to make. I know they take like years and years of production. It almost, I think it's almost like every time one finishes, he f- starts the next one and then it takes as long as it takes for him to finish. So, um, I would believe that like, because the details are so attended to that, um, he must be micromanaging in some way. I, I mean, I definitely look forward uh, going back to like the Wes Anderson films as a like hotel or like an escape from reality, much like a hotel is escape from your normal reality. Um, Cause I, I, I very much look forward to the next Wes Anderson movie I see because uh, having only seen this and Isle of Dogs uh, and noticing the simula- the similarities before it uh, between them uh, that really helps me kind of identify what Wes Anderson's style is. Uh, I think that, saying that his movies are like a hotel and that escape really fits because it really does have that same feeling even if the movies are wildly different in their topics yeah um uh, yeah okay so there's there's a couple other things we could talk about uh, first of all this movie is credited as being inspired by the work of stefan zawig zawig he's an austrian novelist playwright and journalist and uh and biographer and he was popular during the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and I think I found a, a quote on Wikipedia, which kind of explains, I think, why Wes Anderson was so interested in this guy. He says, uh, critical opinion of his of war is strongly divided between those who despise his literary style as poor, light, weak and superficial and those who praise his humanism, simplicity and effective style. Sound a little familiar? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I haven't read any of Zawig's. Zawig's? Yeah. Zawig's. That's right. Uh, work. But apparently he's extremely popular. 
and um, he's been around for since the uh, over almost a hundred years, um, and his work is uh, well known throughout the world. It's uh, I mean it's interesting to know this whimsical and fantastical movie is grounded in some sort of reality. Uh, yeah, that's true, and I wonder like at what level that. Like his his writing was at right was is he the author or is he zero or is he Gustav in this situation? Right, right. I don't know. That's pretty cool though. Um, and the last thing we should we should definitely touch on is the Oscars that this movie won. It won. It it was nominated for nine, and it won four. On IMDb, it's the one hundred and ninetieth one best rated movie. Hmm. Top 200, not bad. Not too bad. Best Achievement in Costume Design, Best Achievement in Makeup and Hairstyling, Best Achievement in Music Written, and Original Score, and Best Achievement in Production Design. Very cool. I, I So that's the winner. Production Design, I think, is definitely... I think that kind of encapsulates what I'm... It's hard to put into words exactly what this movie looks like, but, I mean, obviously, that's why you got to watch it, right? But it's uh, the strict adherence to... The camera angles that they were going to use throughout this movie, I think, adds so much to it. And uh, definitely, I, I, I don't know. My opinion towards award shows is I kind of I kind of don't care. Uh, I think that plenty <laughs> of great movies go without recognition from them. And uh, some movies that don't deserve it will win. But I, th- I, I mean, if we're thinking these awards are super fair, then obviously this movie is worth awarding. Yeah, and I think my opinion of it is kind of similar where it's like the awards don't mean much, but it's for me it's like it's it's great if you win one, but it doesn't mean anything if you didn't win one. Yeah, I, um, I can agree with that. So, so I, I don't know. I, I use it as like um, verification of it being well-regarded, I guess, critically acclaimed. Yes. You could say. So, like, you know, this is approved by a board uh, as being a – good movie so it's worth checking out just like um, just in, like all art in, it's only good if it's approved by a board of experts right <laughs> exactly <laughs> I'm glad you understand uh, to answer a question we an- we asked earlier it actually won uh, a golden globe for best comical best comedy god damn it best comedy wow it was funny <laughs> best best uh yeah, so that answers the question then this movie was a comedy Apparently, it was put in the comedy category by the Golden Globes, which mean even less than the Oscars. <laughs> it was also nominated for Best Motion Picture, uh, Best Achievement in Directing, Best Achievement in Cinematography, Film Editing, and Writing. So I agree with all those all, nominations. All these things we've been praising this whole time, it was also nominated for. So Yeah. So, yeah, overall, I think this is a great movie. Uh, personally, I enjoyed it more than Isle of Dogs. I think that, okay. and, and I think that that goes along with the way that people recommend Wes Anderson to me. A lot of people say you have to see Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, so I, I mean, it's I don't have enough body of knowledge to say that this is his best work, but I think it is very uh, indicative of his style, and it's a good uh, sample of what he brings to the cinema. So I I highly recommend this movie. Uh, especially if you're trying to get a feel for who Wes, who Wes Anderson is as a filmmaker. Yeah, and I think this one is probably one of his more accessible to like uh, to like the other public. You know, I think a lot of his other movies like get kind of bogged down in style, which can be really interesting and I think says a lot about him. Um, but I think this movie is a lot more focused on like the story and the characters 
and it um it pays off in in a big way because I do think it's a more traditional movie than some of his other ones. For me, I don't know if this is my favorite one. It was for a long time, but uh, I guess I'll have to see Isle of Dogs in the small screen to, to verify that, but I think Isle of Dogs is still my favorite. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to exploring more Wes Anderson films at some point in the future. I'm, I'm officially a Wes Anderson fan after <laughs> you can after just, this. You can say that since you've seen two, yes. so <laughs> that's how it works. So, uh, okay. but yeah, all right, Joey. Well, thank you so much for joining me once again. No problem. Anytime. Hey, thanks for listening to Apple Chat. You can find us on iTunes, Google, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast app. Please rate us five stars and review us. Have a comment on something we said? Tweet at us, at AppleChat, or send us an email, AppleChat at gmail.com. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.